0: Welcome to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Glad to be back on the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. I'm Daniel Mullins. This week, we sit down with Tammy Rogers King of the Steel Drivers. I'll have to admit, on a personal level, I really didn't know Tammy that well Before I sat down to interview her uh, for this podcast, but she's somebody I've always been intrigued with, always been impressed with her her musical ability, the way she carries herself, her songwriting, her fiddle playing, her singing. Uh, Not only from way back in the day when you uh, can look up some of those old Dusty Miller videos on YouTube, highly encourage you to go down that rabbit trail. But of course with the Steel Drivers uh, Ever since I was in high school When the Steel Drivers first burst onto the scene We chat about her early days in music Working on the road with Patti Loveless And of course her time with the Steel Drivers Over the last 15 years or so We recorded this interview Labor Day weekend of 2020 So it was a few years ago uh, It was right still smack dab uh, In the pandemic And the Steel Drivers album Bad For You Had just been released So when we mention a recent album. That's the project we're speaking of. I know that the Steel Drivers have their first ever gospel album that will be released soon. So be sure to check out Tougher Than Nails, available from Gaither. It is outstanding. And one reason I'm so excited about that album is how much I learned about Tammy on a personal level in this interview. She opens up about a lot of things and, uh, man, we've, uh, we've been pals ever since so grateful to Tammy, uh, for joining me on this interview, uh, walls of time, bluegrass podcast field recorded interviews. So we don't record these in some sterile studio somewhere or over zoom 500 miles apart. We record them live and in person wherever we can. This one we recorded backstage at Sam jam bluegrass, 2020. Hey, speaking of Sam Jam, I was there this past weekend and I was glad I had my new lawn chair from Lawn Chair USA. Uh, I was comfortable all weekend in my brand new Magnum sized lawn chair from Lawn Chair USA. Check them out, lawnchairusa.com Walls of Time. Use code Walls of Time to save 10% off your new favorite lawn chair. But anywho, Tammy and I recorded this one backstage at Sam Jam in my sister's Jeep Wrangler with the top off. It was a gorgeous night. You can hear the crickets chirping. Uh, You can hear the night air. And you can even hear uh, the Cleverleys on stage uh, from the front of the house. So it really sounds like you're backstage at a bluegrass festival. So I know a lot of folks like having that ambiance and atmosphere. It really puts you right in the setting. Uh, so just giving you a heads up, that's what you're hearing in the background It's the Cleverleys on stage. It, it doesn't impact what Tammy has to say, though. And uh, for some of you, I think you'll think it's kind of cool because you. it sounds like you're right smack dab in a topless Jeep with myself and Tammy. Rogers, King of the Steel Drivers. Let's go there now. Here's Tammy Rogers on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. So, Tammy, when did you first pick up a fiddle?
1: Oh, Daniel, that's a really interesting story. Um, I'll try to make it short because I know we only have a certain amount of time. But my dad decided that I was going to play fiddle. Really? Yes, when I was 10. And I'm originally from East Tennessee. Okay. And most people know that, I think, by now. But we had moved out to Texas when I was five. And I didn't really like it out there. I never bought into the everything is bigger and better in Texas. I was always a mountain girl. I wanted to come back to East Tennessee so bad. So we had moved back there when I was in fourth grade and um went to school there and i loved it i didn't want to go back to texas but my you know the work situation wasn't great for my dad so he went he was like we're going back you know so um when we went back he said um i'm going to roll you in this the school system had an orchestra he said i'm going to roll you in an orchestra and i was like i don't want to play any old fiddle (laughs) i remember it like it was yesterday and um So, because to me, you know, that was part of moving back to Texas. I had to play fiddle. So, um, he took me to the music store, and they originally wanted me to get a viola. And we got to the music store, because we were going to rent one at the time. Um, And they didn't have any violas that would fit me, any small ones. So, we went ahead and got a violin. And I remember coming home, and I got the little book, the little instruction. Book one, Muller Rush was the name of the book. And, um, I opened that case and I fell in love. And besides meeting my husband many, many years later, that has been my greatest love.
0: What about the fiddle, you know, drew you to it when you opened that case? I don't
1: know. You know, it's so weird because I had played piano for a couple years and I had played a little bit of mandolin. My dad showed me a few little, you know, very elementary chords But I I do have a theory that if you're musical, and granted there are some people that just aren't, you know, God bless them. But (laughs) if you're musical, I really do believe that there is an instrument that is really your voice, if that makes sense. Because, for instance, my sister played flute, and she could make a Coke bottle sound musical. You know, she just had that kind of wind instrument gift And I can't do that. But when it came to the violin, or fiddle as we call it in bluegrass, it never felt awkward. It's like my body just did the things that it needed to do. And it's a crazy instrument. It's so hard. It's so hard. It's ridiculous. You know, your left hand's doing one thing and your right hand is doing another. And you got to turn your head to the left. It's just crazy. I mean, and I've taught enough that literally I've seen the people that can pick it up and go, okay, yeah, this works. This makes sense. And the people that just struggle to even learn how to hold it. <laughs> so I really do believe that. I mean, I believe that again, if you're a musical, there is an instrument that you are, you know, almost divinely meant to play.
0: So, you said that, you know, your dad had taught you some chords on the mandolin. Mm-hmm. Um... So, obviously, if you're going to be learning it in the school orchestra program, it's going to be a lot different than, you know, your bluegrass fiddle. Like you said, it's going to yeah. be more violin style than, yeah. than fiddle. So, how did that transition occur? Where, How soon from picking up the instrument did you were you drawn to more bluegrass fiddling than the violin style you were being taught at school? Pretty quickly. Really. You
1: know, I mean, my parents were both... Um, Semi professional musicians, I guess I should say. When they met back in the fifties, they met at a radio station. So and that's that's really what they were doing, you know, for money and they got married and then suddenly they started having kids and like, oh, this isn't enough money to take care of our family, so they got other jobs. But um I you know, was just used to hearing them sing and play and my dad had all the instruments around the house and So I had been playing three or four months and I remember distinctively trying to pick out a melody by ear and I think my dad must have overheard me because he came in there and he knew just enough on the fiddle to show me um, a couple tunes and the first one he showed me was Boil'em Cabbage Down and I very quickly learned that and then he showed me Ragtime Annie Um, and the, the amazing gift... Was, as soon as he would teach me the tune, he would back me up with guitar. So immediately I had that sense of playing with somebody else and the timing that you learn. And even then I was learning about chord progressions without somebody even explaining it to me. Yeah. Um, So then we were back in Texas at this time, of course. There was a guy that was giving fiddle lessons. So my dad somehow found out about him and sign me up and he would drive me literally across town which would be an hour hour and a half to get me over to take lessons with this fellow named Johnny Thorne who was amazing he taught me so very much um, and then my dad started a family band when I was about 11 so I you know he got me on stage and my mom was playing bass and when I was 12 um, he heard about this young guy that was living over in Arlington at the time it was a couple of years older than me. I think he was 15 at the time, so my dad would go pick him up. And it was a guy named Scott Vestal. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Wow. So
1: Scott and I grew up playing for several years, two or three years there in my dad's
0: band. Wow.
1: Yeah, it was amazing.
0: <laughs> that has to be cool now, all these decades later, oh, to see yeah. how you both have blossomed. And we say blossomed.
1: decades, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed.
0: You So growing up in Texas, uh, you you said that, you know, playing fiddle in Texas, it's almost like it was cliche, but what Mm -hmm. about growing up in Texas? You know, you got, of course, Bob Wills and so much of that particular style of, you know, western music in Texas. How did that influence your fiddle playing?
1: Um, I think it did a bit, but to be honest, at that particular point in Texas, there were a lot of bluegrass festivals. And um, in Oklahoma and arkansas and louisiana so we kind of played around that whole five or six state area um you know almost every weekend from literally april through about october um so i was really steeped heavily in bluegrass
0: who were some folks that when you were learning the instrument that uh, you were really drawn to as influences
1: oh my gosh um Definitely, you know, all the, I mean, the 75 Crow album Yes. is, I mean, that's still the thing, you know. And I have the original cover and the secondary cover on vinyl. That's how big of a fan I was. (laughs) And back in the day, you know, we had turntables, and I can remember keeping that album the two Boone Creek albums and um, Manzanita yeah. Skaggs and Rice and the first definitely the first one or two Doyle Lawson and the Quicksilver albums on my turntable pretty much constantly and it was the old style so you know it would play the LP and then I would flip the whole stack over
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> and start it over again um, so you know it was kind of that '70s bluegrass, yeah. you know, kind of era, which was just, and then of course all the bluegrass album bands started coming out. Oh
0: yeah, what a what about that those albums? I mean, it was such a cool era, but you know they were so con- you know contemporary. What about those records and that style of bluegrass? That era really sucked you in at a young age.
1: You know, I don't know. Because it's just, I mean, I look back and like, here I was this girl, but, you know, it just, it was just my thing. (laughs) I mean, I remember, you know, my friends were all listening to Journey and Van Halen and, I mean, I certainly knew that music too. But when I would go home and I couldn't wait till Friday rolled around that we could load up and, you know, go to Texarkana to a big bluegrass festival. (laughs) And, you know, it just was what I did and what I was into. You know, the Emmylou Harris records, the Roses in the Snow record, you know, the Blue Kentucky Girl record, you know, all that stuff. And it was such a big deal when she hired Ricky, you know, and he was playing with her. And I remember sitting in front of the TV and they did that PBS you know, show when Ricky was with Emmy and, you know, and then there was the, um, Boone Creek on a PBS from Lexington and somehow we saw it and I had my little cassette recorder (laughs) up to the TV, you know, remember the, you know, Pathway of Teardrops recording that and I don't know, It, it just, it just struck a chord with me. I don't know if it's just inherently my Appalachian roots, but... It's just been my thing.
0: You, you said your your Appalachian roots, and you said that you never really felt as at home in Texas as you did in Tennessee. What, what about the mountains, uh, you know, sucked you in and spoke to you?
1: Well, you know, all, both sides of my family were from East Tennessee. And um, even as a little girl, I remember being at my grandmother's house and listening to the Carter Family Records. And you know Mother Maybelle was my first hero <laughs> I remember listening to those records And looking at the album covers And realizing She plays Yeah She's playing that guitar She's playing that auto harp And, and it was just Amazing to me And I love that music And I still do Um, And it just Resonated with me Still does, um, so there was a part of me that all along knew I was going to get back to the mountains, somehow, some way, and you know, as fate would have it, I, I, you know, completed high school in Texas, and I went to um, SMU in Dallas. Okay. On a classical violin scholarship. <laughs> I think it's okay to say that now after all these yeah. years.
0: <laughs> you lived um, that down, right? <laughs> I
1: won't be branded, you know, a fake or a phony in the bluegrass world. Um, but I went, and it was just so not the right spot for me that after my sophomore year, I just went, uh-uh. I've got to find something else. And I heard about this small school in Nashville called Belmont College at the time. And um, people thought I was crazy for leaving this bigger school, you know, big yeah, full-ride yeah. scholarship. And I made the the change and got myself to Nashville and never looked back. And it was just the best thing I ever did.
0: It was I'm, I'm assuming that Belmont was known for their... Did they have their music programs, music business type stuff going th- at that did. time? They did.
1: It was still very... You know, small At yeah. the time it was a very small Baptist college um, And, you know It was just so great to be at a school Where, even though I still was Continuing to study classical music You know, there were guys in there Walking around with their electric guitars Yeah, yeah You know, the very, you know Kind of the first week or two I was there I met a couple guys from Kentucky And we're singing bluegrass songs <laughs> You know, it's like, this is awesome <laughs> So it, it was really just a total different vibe and different, you know, attitude towards music. And that's exactly what I needed.
0: Why do you think that having a more open-minded attitude towards music is is such a, such a good thing and so important?
1: Well, I do appreciate, you know, the fact that I had great classical teachers. Um, because at this point, I really believe, you know, if you've got... Good technique, if you know how to play the instrument, you should be able to play any style you want to play.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, because a note in tune is a note in tune. Mm -hmm. Good tone is good tone. Mm -hmm. So kind of the fundamentals of playing the instrument should really kind of cut across any style you want to play. Um, But not being judged by what style of music you choose to play. Yeah. Really should be you know kind of the accepted norm too absolutely um and and i think we're we're i mean this is obviously many many years since i was in that position and and we've certainly moved i think more in that direction as unfortunately you know classical orchestras have struggled in recent years you know to to keep up um their audiences and to to keep their funding going um, so you have many, many string players that, that are looking beyond classical music to try, because they still want to be musicians and they still want to be able to support themselves. Um, so I don't see that as a bad thing. I see it as a positive thing.
0: Yeah. Hello folks. My brother-in-law Daniel introduced me to Samson's Dead Sea Clay two months ago, and I've been using it ever since. It's the only product I've found that not only gives me that moldable matte finish I've been looking for, but also leaves my hair feeling healthier when I wash it out. So if you're like me and want healthy, stylish hair, go to samsonshaircare.com and use promo code BLUEGRASS to save 10% and order Samson's Dead Sea Clay today. At the time when you were playing with your family band, I'm assuming you didn't see very very many other female musicians at bluegrass hmm. festivals at that time is that correct assumption very
1: few yeah
0: did did you notice that it was different because that you were a girl playing this style of music or at what age did you realize it's a little unique that I'm a female bluegrass musician
1: um pretty quickly really yeah um but it was always in my mind and and maybe just because i have that little bit of or, you know kind of grit in my personality that when somebody you know some old codger would come up and go you're pretty good for a girl that I would just kind of grit my teeth and go if I can't play with the boys I'm not going to do this <laughs> so I was never satisfied with just kind of quote being a girl player mm-hmm. yeah it was important to me that and you know here I was in a band with Scott Vestal. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, at the same time, we were running around with Billy Joe Foster and Craig Fletcher and Greg and Brad Davis and Russell Moore. Yeah. You know, all these people that have gone on. Richard Bailey. Oh, yeah. My fellow steel driver. (laughs) We met when I was probably 14 or 15. Wow. You know, so there was this incredible scene of amazing players and I wanted to be as good as any of them and you know it wasn't even a question in my mind that that i that i couldn't be yeah you know what i mean
0: mm-hmm.
1: so um that's always been my attitude i don't really think about male female it's like,
0: uh, aside, you play it or you don't. <laughs> aside from the uh, you know, occasional, uh, occasional comment, um, like you said from an old codger, um, was was there ever any other times where you were treated differently because you were a woman in this music?
1: Um, you know, it's funny because I would say yes. But, unfortunately, some of that was from my parents.
0: Really? Yeah. How so?
1: My dad was so overprotective. I think they had it in their mind that I either needed to be in a family band or be married to a guy in the band. That it wasn't really appropriate for me to, say, do what I'm doing now. I'm not married to anybody in the steel drivers. Yeah. None of those guys are my brothers. They're not my dad, you know. Um, so there was a big learning curve for them. And and when that really kind of, when they saw how it could be, was actually when I got hired to tour with Patty Loveless. Really? Which is not a bluegrass act, of course. But, um, yeah, I, I got hired, you know, kind of left the bluegrass world behind there and went out and did country gigs for a pretty long while. And they they came, and they saw, and they met the guys in the band and realized, this is okay. You know, this is okay for our daughter to be doing this, you know. Um, But it was definitely a progression for them to feel okay about that.
0: Really? Wow. Uh, When you got to Nashville uh, and, and got enrolled at Belmont, oh. What was so exciting? It, it sounds really cool that you came of age at a time when, and it's something that I've always been drawn to is the era that bluegrass really started seeping into the country. Right when, when you see, right. you know, Ricky working with Emmylou, and then oh, Ricky and yeah. Keith and Marty and Vince really taking those bluegrass elements mm-hmm. to a whole broader audience. Yeah. Was that? Did that make it more exciting to be in Nashville um, at that in that era?
1: Well, it did, you know, and I definitely, you know, loved a lot of all those records and the Okanes and Mm -hmm. you know a lot of that stuff that was the Whites were you know huge at that time. Yeah, major label deal, yeah, and that was so exciting, Um, you know. So I hadn't, I wasn't really thinking, you know, myself about being able to do that, but. I remember, you know, when I got the call to go audition for Patty's, you know, band, I remember listening to her records and going, wow. At that point, she had recorded like a Stanley Brothers song on every record. Yeah. <laughs> and it was very apparent. I mean, she was from East Kentucky.
0: And sounded like it, and it was awesome. <laughs>
1: yes. And I thought, wow. What an amazing opportunity and and i went and i met her and gosh singing with her was just heavenly you know and we we hit it off and it was amazing first gig it was an amazing opportunity and you know still to this day i'm so thankful that you know she embraced me because i didn't know anything i mean i'd never played in an electric band at that point so, I mean, it was a huge learning curve um, for me, but, you know, it just, it showed me that there were avenues out there where you could take the music and even, you know, even if it's just a part of what you do, I mean, she had some huge commercial hits, but she's still an East Kentucky girl.
0: Just like you're an East Tennessee girl.
1: That's right. Absolutely. And the steel drivers, you know, when that happened, it felt very much like, okay, this is the perfect combination of elements for me. Yeah.
0: What well, you know, you you were part of a a popular bluegrass an influential bluegrass band called Dusty Miller. Oh yeah. And I'm sure I'm assuming that was before Patty Loveless, came, yes, right? Yes, okay. it was. Yeah. A couple Wh- years before. What are some things you learned from your time with Patty that when the next bluegrass band that you found and came around the Steel Drivers that uh, made that experience different that you know, things that you drew from your time with Patty Loveless for, for that band?
1: Well, you know, kind of in those years between, you know, Dusty Miller and the Steel Drivers it was about 15 years there. I played all sorts of music. I played, you know, a lot of commercial country, played a lot of Americana stuff. You know, people like Buddy Miller and Julie Miller and...
0: Which is different than Dusty Miller.
1: (laughs) Oh, totally, yeah. But, you know, a lot of stuff that was really, you know, blues-based and and original music. You know, it wasn't like we were doing a ton of covers. You know, it was a lot of singer-songwriter stuff. So I think when the steel drivers rolled around, you know, it was the thing that hooked me was, yes, this is a bluegrass instrumentation, but I get to pull on all these other sources of material that I've played, you know, all the different years, but it's all original music. Yeah. We're not going back and just reworking... You know, the Monroe catalog and the Stanley Brothers catalog and the Flatt & catalog. I mean, there's people that do that and they do it great. And I'm happy to hear that. But for me, I knew I wouldn't be satisfied doing that. So, it was really an amazing kind of convergence of material, people, a mishmash of influences but it felt at the same time very true to kind of bill monroe's original mix of appalachian fiddle music and the blues
0: absolutely absolutely um you you mentioned the originality of the steel drivers and how original material has been such a key element of their success when did when did you begin really honing your craft as a songwriter
1: uh, you know, I have been writing since I was about 15. And, um, even before the Steel Drivers, I had a commercial Nashville publishing deal for eight years, starting in about 97 through, what would that been, 2004, 2005. Um, had some cuts. Terry Clark covered one of my tunes, had a pretty big hit with. Um... In the early days with the Steel Drivers, you know, when we kind of got together, Mike and Chris had this huge catalog of songs that they had written, so that was kind of the backbone of those first two records, and then, you know, once Chris left the band, and then Mike Mike left a couple years later...
0: Mike Henderson and Chris Stapleton, yes, right?
1: Yes, yes. Um, it kind of fell on me pick up that songwriting mantle and for the next two records of course gary nichols yeah who's an amazing songwriter and singer um and we kind of shared you know those duties we kind of you know i would bring in songs and he would bring in songs and we wrote a couple things together um so you know I, i really felt that even though a lot of people saw that you know when chris left the band or mike left the band that oh let's send them our songs you know I was kind of like I think we got this yeah I think I think we're good and I'm so thankful that I'm in a band with the guys that I'm with because same thing this last record you know Gary left the band we had new lead singer and suddenly it was all on my shoulders and and they're like well what should we do and I said I think we got this guys I had been writing heavily leading up to that record, so I started sending them songs, and I bet we had 60 or more songs to listen through. And very quickly, they were like, we've got this.
0: (laughs) We've got this. I I love it.
1: And they they were so great, because, I mean, they're like my babies. I love them all. So I was like, here, I'm just going to send them to you guys, and you listen, and my job is the writing your job is the picking (laughs) and they did they did you know and I feel like you know um, I'm so proud of the new record because of that I mean it it really is a collective effort um, because they they have absolute say on you know I mean I could say hey here's a new one that I wrote and I love it and if they go "Mm, I don't think it's right for us I'm like okay
0: yeah. So, Here's five more.
1: <laughs> right, right. No, no, no. It, it was great. Yeah. And, and there were songs that we went up cutting that that I'd thought, well, I don't know if they'll dig this, but a couple of things Kevin was like, we absolutely have to cut this. I'm like, awesome. So it was definitely um, a collective thing.
0: I, th- I may have told you before, but I still remember when the first Steel Drivers record came out. And uh, at our radio station that I work at, we have a lobby shop, sells albums, CDs, and I was in high school, and I came in, and the guy that was working in the record store, I'm like, you know, see the black cover, <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, you know, what's what's this new band sound like? And he, I'll, I'll never forget it. He said, if Ray Charles was going to cut a bluegrass record, it'd sound like that <laughs> record.
1: I love that. And, I love and, that.
0: And it's stuck with me ever since, and What do you think about the way that the band embraced such a, almost like, especially at that time, it seems commonplace now, but such a different style of singing um, for a bluegrass band to adapt? Um, What do you think? Why do you think that hooked people and really drew them in? I mean, it's got the it's got the mountain soul, but it's got that bluesy edge, you know. That, 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 yeah. You know, how did you guys stumble upon that that magical combination and that balance?
1: Well, you know, quite simply, Chris Stapleton.
0: When did you first meet Chris?
1: When I walked into Mike Henderson's house for the very first, he invited me. I said, like, "Hey, you feel like picking a little bluegrass?" I'm like, "Okay." And I, at that point, I hadn't seen Mike in four or five years, and I went over to his house on a Sunday night, and Chris Stapleton was sitting there. I'd heard his name around town, but I'd never heard him sing, and he opened his mouth, and it was like, wow.
0: You'd probably just heard him as a songwriter. As a songwriter. Assuming, you know, never yeah, wanted nothing I'd read more his name, and stuff like that. you know, a yeah. you
1: know, couple on some credits. But, um, yeah, he pretty much opened his mouth, and it's like, okay, that's that's strong that's
0: special and
1: and you know it would have never occurred to me that i could sing with that style of voice and that it would make this thing happen because i don't have a gruff bluesy voice yeah but it's almost like you know when patty loveless and vince gill sing together she kind of puts this top end edge on his kind of softer rounder voice yeah and i think i kind of did that with chris yeah yeah it's like it this cutting sound and it you know it was just it was just like this kryptonite you know (laughs) i don't know how to explain it any other way and the very first record believe it or not we cut it live really chris and i sang live vocals we were standing next to each other there was a you know there was a divider there but i could see him and he could see me and the only thing that wasn't cut live was was mike fleming's baritone vocal he wanted to just focus on his bass plan so he went back and overdubbed his baritone vocal wow. but everything else you hear on that record me and chris singing that was live on the floor wow. wow and we wanted to do that because we wanted to put out a record and have people believe that they what they were hearing could really happen
0: yeah well, and that it es-
1: wasn't just overdubbed and fixed and polished. It's like, no, this is what you're gonna hear when you see us.
0: Well, and especially at at that time, especially when you look at country records that were coming out at that era, that I mean, they were great records, but they were so slick and so Oh yeah. And just like today. There so many of them are, are so slick and so polished and so
1: well, and a perfect. Lot of, I mean, know? I don't want to offend anybody, but a lot of modern bluegrass is that way too.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, and so when you have a record come out that has, you know, from a new band that has that much grit and mm-hmm. dirt in it, and it's real, it's it's just it's it's refreshing in a dirty way, you know. Yeah.
1: No, and, and and people responded to that, and I think they responded to the realism of it.
0: Yeah, w- with how different that band sounded when when you guys first hit the scene, uh, how how long did it take? for for people to to for things to really click and people you realize that you guys were really hitting on something special that the bluegrass world had never heard before
1: um well the first record was nominated for a grammy so that was a pretty quick indicator kind of in the greater world but you know as far as you know playing bluegrass festivals you know it was probably pretty similar to Newgrass Revival, you know, mm-hmm. back in the day because we would go play, and I think people were like, "What are we hearing here?
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah,
1: I mean th- there were certain audiences that didn't really get it at all, and then we could go play someplace else, and people would just be like going bananas so yeah. it 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 took a while, you know, um, and you know, frankly, I still feel that way, you really know, sometimes. I mean, we've been at it hardcore now for 12 13 years and and there're still some 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 folks that just don't get it. And that's okay. If you if, know
0: if you're at one of those those shows or playing in front of those crowds that don't get it. Maybe it's not what they were expecting, maybe it's not what they're wanting. I, I don't know. How do you I'm sure you've gotten criticism at some of those events whether from a fan or a promoter how do yeah. how do you handle that when someone is confused (laughs) i guess is the best way to put it
1: you know i have been at it long enough that i just you know kind of have to say this is what we do it's not for everybody yeah you know and the funny thing is though we have so many fans outside of kind of the traditional bluegrass world absolutely that you know that kind of makes up for some of that
0: yeah um when of course i'm sure you were stoked when your friend Chris, you know, took over the world oh, on that special night at the CMAs yes, that was about amazing. five years ago, mm-hmm. um, how did things change for the band when everyone all of a sudden in twenty four hours everyone hmm. in the world knows who Chris Stapleton yeah. is?
1: Well, I mean, it was a very positive effect um, for us because suddenly, yes and Chris has been great because in almost every interview he's mentioned the band. Yes. And that part That's of one his thing I've history. Al- I've
0: always loved Absolutely.
1: Yeah. He's been great, you know, and and I think and I don't know if he's still doing it, but early on he was selling the first two records at his shows. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he was con- he's very proud of that work. Yeah, absolutely. Um so you know, it's it's been a huge leg up for us in many ways and and you know kind of through the years i could tell when you know when he would be on like some major show or (laughs) you know there'd be a spike in our sales yeah because people would go and they would go oh man i love this guy and suddenly you know with google or whatever anymore you you can
0: figure it out yeah you can
1: research him and suddenly steel drivers well i want to hear this song and then they're They're buying his record, and they're going and buying our records, too. So it definitely has increased our fan base.
0: It's been so cool to see how your guys' music was still the same. You know, you guys didn't have to change what you were doing at all just because everyone figured out what y'all had been doing for years. Right. You know, but maybe they just didn't realize they were invited to the party.
1: Right, right. No, you know, we've... um you know kind of kept doing what we do and i mean it's it's amazing the people i run into at random places and they're like oh my god you're in the still drivers you know and and they they know the music yeah or i'll be sitting in a restaurant somewhere and suddenly one of the songs come on you know it's yeah. just it's 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 an unbelievable gift
2: I've got a secret. My name is Santana Mullins, Daniel Mullins' wife, and for the last year, I've been stealing from him. Don't tell him, but I've been using a shampoo and conditioner from Samson's Hair Care. I noticed that even at the end of the day, Daniel's hair was still soft to the touch and smelled better than mine, so I had to sneak and give it a try, and I'm glad that I did. I have fallen in love It's the only brand of shampoo and conditioner I've found that holds their scent all day while leaving my hair feeling soft and well-nourished. If you want to see for yourself, visit samsonshaircare.com. Use code BLUEGRASS to save on your order. That's samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS. Ladies, be sure to buy your man Samson's shampoo and conditioner. You'll both thank me.
0: One thing that's been so cool about the Steel Drivers, because you guys are known for your live shows, you guys bring the energy, the bluesy feel, but some of your, um, the, the depth of some of the songs that you guys record, whether that is one of your earlier ones, like Where Rainbows Never Die, mm-hmm. um, yeah. that I know that's been so special for you guys, or even off of your most recent album, Bad For You, the song Fallen Man, oh, yeah. which, I mean, that song... It dropped me on the floor the no, first time I heard you. it. No problem. And You wrote that one with Jerry Sally, right? I
1: did. Jerry Sally and Liz Hingberg. Yeah. The story behind that um, is Liz is a native New Yorker. Oh, wow. And uh, we had written um, River Runs Red together for the Muscle Shells recordings. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, another deep yes, song. Yeah.
1: Yes, amazing song. And a couple other things we'd written. Long Way Down. Mm mm-hmm. um, and Liz was an early co-writer with Chris. Um, they co-write with Where the Willow Cries. And Jerry, of course, co-wrote Midnight Tears with Chris. Um, so they had long-standing ties with the band. And we were...
0: Uh,
1: Liz and Jerry and I were supposed to write, and it was right around 9-11. I don't know if it was on the exact day. This was a few years ago. Or, you know, day before. And Liz walks in. She says, guys, I, I really feel compelled to write this song today and she started describing it and jerry and i were both like absolutely we're in let's do it and it became this amazing piece and i don't know how else to describe it It it's just this this piece of art in a way in history and i took it into the guys and i was like what do you think and because it's so unlike anything
0: else. Well, and, and for the listeners that maybe haven't heard the song, yet, it's... Uh, why don't it's you about tell 9-11. About, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's about that famous photo of the falling man that chose to jump from a building as opposed to, you know, being burned alive in the World Trade Towers. Um, and it, it just... It's, it's one of the most... One of the things I've written that I'm most proud of... Um, you know, the line, my God was there, I stepped out into the blue, you know, my God was there when I had to choose, you know, stepped out into the blue, it it just, I'm so proud of that, um, but I played it for the guys, and they were immediately like, we've got to record this, they so totally got it, and believed in it, that it was, you know, and I love that about them, you know not your typical subject matter not your typical that's
0: a that's a song that thing. a lot of people would say that's a great song, but we can't but we can't that. do it
1: right yeah. right or musically we can't pull this off but it just it's haunting
0: yeah the how do you um you guys you know a song like that where that's a song that's one of those that other bands would be afraid to record a song like that. Where where does the... It seems almost like the Steel Drivers have no fear to do something that other bands would say, we, we, we're we not doing that.
1: We we don't have any fear.
0: Where does that come from?
1: I, I think it comes from all of us playing so many different styles of music. Mm-hmm. You know, and just... You know, Brent produces a ton of records you know we've we all listen to so many styles of music that it's not really about that it's about what do we want to say and what songs do we want to record and then if we all love the song it's like we'll figure out a way to do it
0: yeah. um you say you know what do you guys want to say what why is it important for for an artist or a band to have something to say
1: um well, to me that's what sets you apart. You know, um and and I think we're we're a prime example, you know, to younger bands that y- you know, if you can if you can build your own catalog, then you've got something. You know, um I mean, I'm not saying that that doing the odd cover is is a bad thing. Um But, you know, you want to be known for your material and for your statement. And you look, you know, historically at the bands that really have had longevity. It's because of that, you know, mainly. I mean, there are a few, obviously, there's always exceptions. But, um, you know, it's it's developing your own catalog.
0: It's got to be a different feeling hearing a crowd like you know you guys just got off stage here at sam jam and hear a crowd of a couple thousand people singing along with one of your songs whether that is ghost mississippi rainbows never die if it hadn't been for love i mean whatever that's gonna be a different feeling hearing a couple thousand people singing one of your songs versus singing along with lonesome river or um, no it's it's the
1: best feeling in the world it really is and i think that's Again at this point there are all of our, you know, careers. That's that's why we're out here doing it. Otherwise, you know, we've got other stuff we could be doing, but you know, that's what that's what hooks us. Keeps us coming back.
0: Steel Drivers live shows are are so legendary and they've proved as a, a great great gateway for folks who have mm-hmm. never experienced bluegrass before. What about uh, what about playing on stage for a live audience? Touches you. Oh,
1: sorry, that's my tour manager calling in. Okay, saying, where the heck are you? <laughs> um, you know, there's just nothing like that energy exchange, energy exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you've got a live audience. I mean, we all do a ton of studio work, but it's just in the moment, and there's just nothing like it.
0: Seeing you on stage just a little bit ago, the way you you just jump up and down, and you just have a have a ball. That's, I
1: do. I love it.
0: it. It's it's so exciting, and you mentioned the energy exchange. You can't help but get energetic when you see the way you love what you do.
1: Well, and and that's you know that's kind of what it is, and you can't really replicate that. I mean, recordings are a different thing, but playing live. You know, you feed off the energy of the crowd and you you try to give back to them as much as they're giving to you. So, yeah, that's definitely what it is.
0: We mentioned the song uh, earlier, Where Rainbows Never Die. What are ways that you have seen that song affect people when you perform it live?
1: Oh, you know, I've seen people just, you know, weeping. I've seen, you know, college guys... Standing there, you know, with their arms around each other, you know, singing along. We've had people, you know, send us stories of, you know, them playing it at their dad's funeral. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's one of those songs that is so powerful. It's, it's just been amazing.
0: When, when you first opened that fiddle case as a little girl and that mm. instrument spoke to you, did you ever imagine that you would be able to use it to touch people? the way that you have
1: no no i don't think when you first start playing that you have any idea the power of music um you know and and initially it was so much fun for me that i remember thinking you know as i got into high school and college wow this can't really be a career because i enjoy this too much there's got to be something else that i'm supposed to do you know that i to help people. You know, I really kept thinking there's got to be something that I'm supposed to do to really help people. And and then it occurred to me you know, music has the power to help people. And and then suddenly I was okay with it because I realized, you know, if this has the power to reach out and touch somebody and make them feel better or to you know make them understand something or you know whatever then that's okay that's using my gift and it took me a while to get there
0: when did you come to that realization
1: i think i was about i don't know 23 24 somewhere around in there because you know i kind of graduated from college and i was trying to figure out well am i supposed to be a teacher am i supposed to you know cuz i you know graduate with a music degree what do you do with that yeah <laughs> but you know i i i think you know it i think i got the message I think i got the message that this is okay and this is what you know god put you here to do
0: how did you get that message you know how how did how did that process work itself out where you were what precipitated that realization that Making music makes a difference.
2: I
1: think, you know, just getting out and playing for people and playing for crowds and seeing their response. And I remember at one point playing in a bar. And I did a gospel song. Mm-hmm.
0: What song was it? You um,
1: I think it was a tune that I'd written. I think it was a tune called You Can't Buy a Ticket to Heaven.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think it was the only gospel song in the set. And I remember these people, like a couple walked up after the show and they said, Thank you so much. That song that you sang really touched us, you know. And, and it occurred to me, it was like, wow, there's power in this. Mm-hmm. And I can, in a way... Maybe that's the only chance that they get to hear that Mm -hmm. in this environment. And, you know, and I felt like it was just a little message, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, again, from God telling me, this is good. You can reach people here. And this this is a way for you to minister in this environment. And ever since then, I was like, "I'm, I'm good with it.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Daniel. This was
0: fun. (laughs) It was fun. It may seem like that interview wrapped up rather abruptly, but truly after that last story she told me, I knew nothing else could top it. And that's why uh, we decided to wrap it up. That and the fact that her tour manager had uh, called her about three or four times already wondering where she was at. Because we were having too much fun in that interview backstage at Sam Jam 2020. Thanks for hanging out with me and Tammy Rogers today. Thanks to Tammy of the Steel Drivers for opening up and uh, getting personal with us on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. I can't thank her enough. Uh, Looking forward to the new album from the Steel Drivers, Tougher Than Nails, available now. Be sure to check out our friends at Samson's Hair Care. Without them, uh, this podcast would not be made possible. Whether it's the pomades, the matte styling creams, the beard oils, the beard balms, the shampoos, the conditioner, check it all out, samsonshaircare.com. Use code BLUEGRASS to save money and uh, get some great new products that are good for your hair and make you look good as well. So that's samsonshaircare.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast wherever you enjoy your podcast. That way you don't miss an episode when they come live. They'll show up straight in your podcast feed and uh, you can be among the first to listen to upcoming episodes. We've still got a great season on the way. Yeah, we're just getting started. Uh, Great to have the Grammy Award winning Tammy Rogers of the Steel Drivers on the podcast today. Also, be sure to like and follow Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast on Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. Love to connect with you. We feature all sorts of cool content. At least I hope you think it's cool. And uh, hopefully you'll engage with us on social media. We'd be much obliged. Next week, we'll visit a Southern Ohio coffee house with our friends Jeremy and Karina Stevens of the band High Fidelity. Thanks for listening to the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast.